All right, thank you, and welcome to another fantastic edition of this Light Beer, Dark Money. And this, this could be our one. best yet. It's a good one. Our guest today is Steve Chukri. Uh, we had a really broad-ranging discussion over three topics, COVID and his role in the Restaurant Association, uh, Aura Ring, <laughs> and then and, his, uh, his time on his time the, uh, the Board of Supervisors. On the, on the state of Maricopa yeah. Board of Supervisors, which he shared with us, uh, this, the, the county of Maricopa is going to be the third largest county in, in no time flat, which is, which is amazing. unbelievable. Amazing. And uh, he actually used the word entrepreneurial and county government in the same sentence, I yeah. noticed, which you wouldn't hear that down south. Nope. Nope. So uh, uh, really yeah. happy to have him, and he was, he was fantastic, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Enjoy the episode. So welcome to the latest in uh, Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. This is Chris Clemens. And we are super excited to have uh, Steve Chukri with us today, who is two roles at least. Well, you're a dad and husband as well. But he is the head of the Arizona Restaurant Association. And he's also a county supervisor. Fifth district? Second. Second district. Yeah. Which is massive. Huge. It is. Is it the biggest? The county? Of the uh, your district is no, they're they're pretty evenly divided, but it's about eight hundred and some thousand people. I mean, you've got a pretty good growth area. Oh, absolutely. So I, I say I work two jobs because I've got an expensive wife and kids, uh, first and <laughs> foremost. But you know, if I can, uh, gentlemen, I I wanted to share with you just about Maricopa County in its full breadth and depth because people don't realize. So you're correct. We've got five uh, supervisorial districts. Average population per district is about just over 800,000. For my district in particular, I've got nine cities, two Indian communities, and just that, just over 800,000 people. Maricopa County is the fourth largest county in America, soon to be third. You've got L.A. County as the largest, Cook County in Chicago as the second, Harris County in Texas as the third, and then we're fourth. But we're right on Harris County's uh, back to Is Harris Dallas or Houston? Uh, it's Houston. Houston. Mm. It's Houston. Uh, so what's ironic and what people don't realize, and a lot of this is pre-COVID, but I still don't think it's going to change the numbers much, is Maricopa County has been the fastest growing county now. This year will be the fourth consecutive year wow. in America. 200 people are moving here every single day to Maricopa County. Not not to the state, to Maricopa County. Yeah. Well, that's and, why people well, down south in Pima County call this the great state of Maricopa. That's true. That's You're correct. That. Um, Versus the People's um, Republic of Pima County. Yes, I'm very aware of that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> acutely aware after COVID, by the way. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, uh, I just thought I'd throw that in there as someone who <clears throat> contributed to those increase in, in, in numbers by moving up here. Right, exactly. And and here's what's fascinating. The, the second fastest growing county in America is Clark County, Nevada. And we're growing 76% faster than they are. Wow. They're not going to catch up. It's not even close. They're not going to catch up. So Maricopa County is bigger than some states. Uh, and so, as I like to say, with that opportunity comes responsibility, and that's what we're trying to do in Maricopa County. So you're, you represent more people than a congressman. Right. That's right. I remind some congressmen of that yeah. from time to time. <laughs> as you should. Yes. Yes. <laughs> should. Fascinating. Let's, let's go to restaurants. Sure. Um, I mean, a hellacious year for restaurants in general, I would think. Um, I don't know what the stats are in Arizona or Maricopa County or Phoenix, but I've heard that 75% of restaurants in LA 
have closed permanently. I, that seems like a huge number, but yeah, it, that's a that's a real large number. I, I don't think that would be true, um, and it certainly wouldn't be following a national standard. So, I've been at this job 19 years. Yep. Um, I was a busboy for two days in college, and I quit because I knew I was going to be fired on the third, <laughs> and. Uh, rightfully so, because it's a it's a very fast-paced, multifaceted industry, and one of the best industries known to man. Four years ago, restaurants became the most trusted industry in America, taking out technology, which held the number one spot for a long, long time. This year, restaurants across the United States were slated to do, meaning 2020, $900 billion worth of food sales, almost a trillion dollar wow. industry. Yeah. What COVID brought it was $275 billion in losses, mm. uh, lost sales. Sales you'll never get back. Let's, let's, let's bring that down and have it percolate down to Arizona. In 2019, we had food sales of roughly $13.5 billion across the state. We're bigger than state government, the state budget. Uh, we were slated to do about 14. Uh, last year. Instead, we lost about $2.5 billion wow. in restaurant sales. Mm. So we are a huge economy. Uh, we're a huge employer. Our daily payroll went uh, last March from $14 million per day down to $2 million mm. per day. We dis we displaced 80% of our workforce within a matter of three to four days. Mm. But as an industry, we really quickly as an association pivoted to takeout, right? Takeout, what's remarkable about this whole thing, takeout represented about 5% of your overall sales on your profit and loss statement. Now it's about 20 to 25%. That's just how much it's grown and needed to. Yeah. So really quickly, we created, uh, as just taking from the energy of our Arizona restaurant weeks, uh, we took uh, that and, and created uh, takeout weeks. So we uploaded about 70, 700 menus across the entire state for people to go to that site, look at what they could do, what what's to go, what's not to go. And keep in mind, not everything can leave your restaurant, right? An ice cream sundae can't leave your restaurant, right? right? So uh, we quickly and very nimble, in a very nimble way, uh, kind of just remodified who we were as an industry and started to do that. The media was very helpful in doing that, getting the word out. Uh, whether it was to go, meaning that it's delivered at your home or you're picking it up off a table outside of our restaurant, uh, that was our saving grace without question last year. Yeah. <clears throat> I did a lot of takeout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now take us back to March of last year. Take us back to it's, it's, you get the word like we're shutting down. Mm -hmm. Were you given any heads up about that? Yeah, I was. And, and that's an excellent question, Chris, in the sense that I had a call from my counterpart in Massachusetts and in his thick Massachusetts accent said, be ready, it's coming. Sure. Because, you know, we, we know it hit the East Coast before it, it came out to, to Arizona. And I said, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you mean. And he said, it's coming, Steve, be ready. And then the more he started talking, the more examples he gave, I realized it. And it was interesting because just that early part of March of, of last year, that first week, we were in D.C. And the restaurants we were going to were dead. I'm like, you know, these are well well-identified, well-adapted, very well-run restaurant concepts. The fact that they're this empty is concerning to me. And they're so, they were saying it was COVID. And I'm like, oh, that's just strange. So we started to get those inclinations. We started to see those early 
signs that uh, things were going. And then uh, and working with the Chinese Restaurant Association, I said, hey, we're, our restaurants are dying because they all thought it was just a China thing. Uh, and, and then what started to become very real. So we started to talk with the Ducey administration. We started to talk with healthcare officials and saying, "Okay, what do we do as an industry?" Uh, and and started that that preparation. And I will tell you, in defense of any elected official across the country, COVID nineteen did not come with a playbook. It's sure. easy to sit back and say you should have done this, you should have done that, but it did not come with a playbook. So did it come as a surprise? No, it didn't. What came as a surprise is what do you do and how do you do it? Sure. And how quickly do you do it? Uh, and Chris, I'll share with both of you that the frustrating thing to me was this notion that restaurants were a super spreader. Yeah. And I had elected officials at the highest ranks calling me saying, you need a voluntary close down your restaurant. And I said, what about Home Depot? What about a grocery store? What about all these other things where you're going in and you're touching things? In a restaurant, you're touching your plate, your glass, and your silverware. And so I, I don't like, uh, and, and I still gets under my skin, uh, this notion and idea that somehow restaurants were a super spreader because we were not and are not. We even had a call with my entire board of directors and the CDC to say, what are we doing wrong here? So I think you had some mayors and you had some other elected officials who in a very knee-jerk fashion started to say restaurants have to close without any any data to back it up, number one. Number two, uh, just because it was seemed like the right thing to do and everyone was saying that, whereas other retail stores and, and others were, were operating uh, – pretty much business as usual. Yeah, maybe wearing a mask. Uh, but it was uh, it was definitely a, probably the hardest part of my my 19 years. Yeah, yeah I, 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 to me, <clears throat> it feels like there was so much unknown early, right? But people got it in their heads, certain what they call facts. And then science has proven some of these facts to be not facts, wrong. But people are still grasping to this notion that they had a year ago or eight months ago or nine months ago or 10 months ago. And it just, I, I've been so frustrated lately. I, you know, we all played along. We all did what we were supposed to for the most part. Um, you know, we stayed home, we wore masks. We, But, you know, I look back and, and you're in county government in addition to being on mm -hmm. the private side, industry side. So you have a very unique view of this. But I look at, what if this were to happen again? How Have we prepared ourselves in a way to say, you know, maybe it's not a good idea that the governor can shut down everything and deem what's essential and what's not essential um, without any input? Because I don't know what input he didn't get input from the legislature um so you know and i i think governor ducey did a decent job i mean clearly better than a bunch of other states but what if it was someone who was on a real power grab you know which he's not he, you know he's not gonna be governor forever right and and yeah. you know I, I hear that i i think people ask me what would you do if you were a governor and i and i think that's a hard question to, to answer but i I would have started as calling every former governor that's alive that was once the governor of Arizona and say, you know Arizona best. What would you do or what do you do? And a reporter I was speaking to last week said, Steve, won't it be fascinating to know in five years what we do know about COVID five years from now? And, and I think that's very poignant because 
we don't know what we don't know. And if there was anything, if you were to put hashtag that, I think that would define uh, 2020. But to your point, Sean, I, I think that things do have to be looked at. And how how better can you prepare? Uh, and what would a protocol be in a situation like that? So here we rush to have a vaccine, yet we stumble as a country getting the vaccine out and distributed in a horrible way. So why wouldn't that have been thought about, right, over this span of time? Uh, as we knew that once a vaccination vaccination was ready, we could we could definitely roll out. So to do the Monday uh, morning quarterbacking would be uh, easy, I think, at this point. Uh, but also, let's also pay attention to the fact that we don't want to overreact. Yeah, and I think that happened in a lot of states and, and in a lot of uh, situations. Um, I think two states, or at least one for sure, will be Florida. Would be a great case model to see how they play out uh, because they took a completely different role uh, than that of California mm-hmm. uh, and the hypocrisy of the leadership in California and New York uh, and those government leaders, Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to call them. It, it was pretty bad. Yeah. It, it was very bad. Uh, to your question at the outset about closures, Arizona, we lost about 10 to 12 percent uh, restaurants that will close for good, which amounts to about 1,000 to 1,200 restaurants. We have around uh, 10,000 restaurants across the state. Some of those were having difficulties anyway, right? This was just the final blow. Uh, but a lot of them could have kept going. Uh, and especially when you talk about, uh, as we did earlier, uh, the population growth of Arizona. People have got to work, they got to sleep somewhere, and they got to eat. Those are three definitives. And and so we, we're optimal, you know, we're hopeful and, and think that uh, in an optimal situation, we're going to have, actually have restaurants continue to reopen. We had some last year that were already in the pipeline, so they reopened them. Uh, and restaurants will, will continue, I think, uh, to do well. We're resourceful. We're restaurateurs are some of the most entrepreneurial people I've ever come to know. But you're sad to see restaurants who were in existence for 30 years or yeah. longer close. And that's, that's always hard. Well, you're, you're touching on what, what New York is experiencing right now as they try to <clears throat> reopen. And that is you have longstanding historical restaurants that are gone mm-hmm. forever, mm-hmm. never to come back. <clears throat> I made the argument early on to some people um, that our hospitality workers are some of the most vulnerable when we're talking about some of the most vulnerable. Um, My experience in the beer industry taught me that so many of these people live paycheck to paycheck. You know, they, they, they don't plan for the future. They're young, vast majority of them. What has been done within the association to try to help some of them, if anything? And what do you see going forward to make sure that the, that this type of shutdown doesn't happen again? Well, first and foremost, we created the Arizona Restaurant Strong uh, campaign through our foundation and raised just over about $400,000 uh, to help displaced workers. And that was just through the generosity of people who read about it uh, here in Arizona, people from out of state, uh, well-known people here in the state that have no connection to the restaurant industry gave very generously. And Chris, what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a construct that wouldn't get muddied, that wouldn't be slow and clunky, uh, that was quick. So if you were displaced, you had to show just the fact that you were displaced, uh, where you worked, a couple key inform, information pieces. And then we sent you a $500 grant just like that. 
uh, just within days. Mm. Uh, and I'll never forget going into a few restaurants, people I didn't know, Mater D came up to me crying and gave me a hug. And he said, you have no idea what that $500 meant to me. Look, $500, I'm Lebanese. $2 is a lot of money, <laughs> especially when your kid's asking for it. <laughs> right. But $500 in the grand scheme of things in most person is, is something, but it's not a lot. Well, if you're unemployed, it's a lot. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, we we paid attention to that and we dispersed the monies quickly and I think that that really helped. Uh, a lot of folks were on unemployment, so that still worked out well. But you have to remember, we're, we're workaholics uh, in in the restaurant industry, and so people sitting idle, uh, it's not good. They just yeah. they just don't know what to do, and so we lost some of our workforce to that. What I mean by that is they moved out of state. If mom and dad live in Wisconsin, I'm just going to go live there, or they said, you know what, I'm going to go pursue a nursing career or some other career now that I have this downtime because they were so busy before. And we lost some good talent because of that. What mm. still hasn't come back, and I think now after Governor Ducey's action next week, it will start or last week, it will start to come back, is our banquet space. So if you go to a fine dining restaurant, those banquet rooms were shut down. So was their staff. Right. We make a lot of business on that. And so was catering. Uh, I think the biggest fascination to me to see what plays out is office space. Is the law firm downtown that's got four floors, are they going to condense to two? And I, I think that is going to also have a ripple effect on many industries, including the restaurant industries, by box lunches not going out, caterings, drop-offs, right. all of those things. So some of that story is still not told. Uh, and I think those are going to be the two longest parts of our industry, parts of our income that are going to be slow in coming, and that's banquet space and catering. That's and that's, you know, obviously that hits restaurants where you have an influx of workers during the day. So the lunch spots like that, and like talk, talked about the banquet space. I think that's why there's going to be so many in D.C. that that end up going under permanently, because D.C. is very slow to reopen, and you know, you talk about a bunch of empty offices. You know, there's already law firms and lobbyist firms and others that have <clears throat> said, you know, why would we spend this much money on this space when we, when we don't need to? Yeah. Cause they can just as easy do their work from mm -hmm. home and they need to go to the Hill. They can drive to the Hill, whatever. But, um, you know, a lot of places in DC that aren't going to come back. Well, Sean, what's, what's amazing about that is that's true, especially for DC. But I remember back in the day when we were both working in D.C. in the mid to late 90s, you had these big accounting firms, I won't mention names, that had a, probably a good 50 to 60 percent of their workforce that would just telecommute. Then they saw work productivity decline rapidly after a period of time and said, no more. You got to come back into the office. Zoom calls and everything else has probably been the lifeblood and the saving grace, right, of, of 2020. However... When everyone has to do it, it has everyone being accountable. When you start to go back to some sense of normalcy of, of office space and the Zoom calls aren't as regular, I don't know that you'll still get the same productivity of people telecommuting today in 2021 or 2022 as you did in 2020, right? And so that's going to be uh, the great question, that is. right, uh, uh, of the, what happens. The commercial real estate guys are hoping. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it seems absolutely. everything I'm hearing is that the third quarter is going to be instrumental in that. Most mm -hmm. of the insurance firms, the financial services firms, they're all calling their people back. 
third quarter. They feel like that's the hump, get over the summer. But they're also getting lots of pushback as, as well. Like, well, I thought this could be my job now. I thought I could have my home office. And the pushback back to them was, no, you were actually hired to be in the office. And this was a nice, you know, this was a nice time and we, we did right. it, but, but now we need you in the office. And, and to your point, and that restaurant down the, downstairs and that coffee shop across the street and the pizzeria uh, around the corner needs the business. Exactly. As well as the drugstores and, and everything else. You just, one thing that COVID-19 <clears throat> taught us all is that God knows what he's doing. He understands the importance of human contact, right? And every spoke in the wheel connected to that hub is commerce. And commerce is so incredibly important from the buses that are going on the streets without people in it, right? I mean, you look at, I've heard that some retailers here, appliance stores, did $30 million, one in particular, in 2020, more business than they did in 2019, because guess what? Everyone was at home. They wanted to fix this. They wanted to do that. And it made perfect sense. So there were certain, certainly benefactors yeah. of, of COVID-19 in the, in the business space. Uh, Home Depot being one. Uh, <laughs> Home Depot, Depot Lowe's, yeah. Ace yeah. Hardware. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And, and so uh, there were certainly winners and losers. But I, I think to both your points, uh, when it comes down to productivity, when it comes down to moving the needle, there's only so much of that you can do without that interaction. And, and without that person to person. We saw it after 9-11. Uh, people thought they didn't need to fly anymore. They didn't need to stay in hotels. Uh, and not to mention how bad hotels did. I mean, restaurants, we suffered. But, but our brothers and sisters, as we call them in the hotel industry, were just pummeled. I mean, it was horrible. Um, and they're starting to get their life back, uh, which is great. We need that. We need it. And the restaurants inside those hotels, yeah. right? So I think to your point too, it, Chris, in the third quarter, that's what I've heard. I think for our industry here in Arizona in the third and fourth quarter, we're going to really start to to see things take off. It's going to be it will be interesting to see how you know because I it's just fascinating how people how different people react. Um, I mean, there's clearly so much fear porn out there from people that just can we they, say that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I never heard it like that, but it's well. But well it's done. it is it's fear porn. It's 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 like. Oh, I have to be afraid. I, you know, they, they, they thrive on this. Oh, we've got to lock ourselves into the house and wear a mask everywhere. And um, I mean, Alex, you were telling us about going to a concert, an outdoor concert, socially distanced. They were still requiring you to wear a mask outside. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just at some point it's like we wear the mask because we shouldn't couldn't socially distance. We're supposed to be outside because that's you know doesn't transmit outside nearly as much as it does inside. I mean, there's just so many things that that got wrong, could could have been fixed. I still think Fauci is all over the board. Oh, well, that's so, a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but it, I, I guess, I think that there's just pent-up demand. You know, I flew, we flew to Miami for spring break. Yes. We actually got out of Miami Beach the day they, they implemented they shut down the, the curfew. The strip. I, I, yeah. You know, so, but, um, but the airport was, I mean, the plane wasn't totally full, but it was going to Miami, but coming back, it was jam-packed. Um, 
so I think that there's definitely pent up demand. Well, and there's there's going to be a big pop. I think. I mean, there's the this economy. term going around called COVID fatigue, and I think that you're seeing it mm-hmm. with what's happening at the restaurants right now. And when the governor lifted the the mask recommendations, um, and 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 also with with I think what you've seen here at uh, Canaan at Canaan Ventures and GCU with with the vaccinations. I, I was it's three weeks ago. Um, I was out in uh, at Old Town, and every restaurant was packed. Scottsdale, every single one, with people of the elder generation, and it seemed like, okay, I got my shot, I'm out. And um, how have you? How have restaurants been able to manage through the last several weeks? Would you say? I mean, it's been it's been kind of a, a rolling thunder of of getting the shackles off in terms of capacity and mass mandates. And did you get a heads and there's up been, on the- And there's been a lot of pushback, you know, we've seen in the press right. of, gosh, you know, this would have been nice to know so we could prepare. Well, <clears throat> we, to, to the overarching, how do we run a restaurant on a daily basis during COVID? It, it's through incredible communication. And we wanted to make sure we were communicating with our members uh, restaurants uh, across the state uh, through different informative ways, whether it's emails, phone calls, uh, and and there were some hiccups along the way. But also with Governor Ducey's administration, uh, weekly calls, uh, weekly dialogue with the governor, sometimes himself. And part of the reason why restaurants were so busy is because of the extension of premises he allowed us to do a few months back, back in December. Yeah. Uh, and that was huge for us to be able to expand our patios the best time of year. Uh, and it's Arizona in December, not Alaska. Uh, and so it was good. It was very good. And that really moved the needle uh, for us. You have to remember, getting food to someone's home is very difficult for a restaurant because packaging is a, is a factor. The limited amount of food, how are you going to get it there? You've You've heard about the delivery, third-party delivery companies taking drinks out of people's milkshake or a slice of pizza missing from the pizza. So how the security of that food mm-hmm. to, to get there um, untouched. And so our our druthers, are, we are the hospitality industry, right, is to, to greet people inside our restaurants. So we managed that very well because if we didn't, we wouldn't have seen a 5% to 25% increase in our to-go sales. When Governor Ducey worked with the industry uh, to expand our patios, it was in many ways a game changer because what it allowed us to do is take what we are missing inside our dining rooms and put it outside and recapture those lost seats. Uh, so that was that was actually the, the beginning of a real, I don't want to say comeback, but really a bridge from where we were losing and hemorrhaging dollars to where we were at least covering our expenses and maybe even making a little bit of money. Not comparatively speaking to 2019, but in 2020 terms, doing well. Uh, so that was that was a huge help. Uh, and as we moved forward, we said, here's what works and here's what, here, here's what doesn't work. To Sean's point, you can sit on an airplane three deep in one row, and they tell you that the ventilation system is better, so therefore you don't have to work that much harder or worry about it. Just wear your mask. Right. Yet, great point. In a restaurant, yeah. we have to seat you six feet apart, and the time you're at that restaurant is a fraction of the time you would likely be sitting on an airplane, shoulder to shoulder with someone. 
So whether it's it's Dr. Bricks, Dr. Fauci, whomever, we, we were very schizophrenic as a country about what protocols are we supposed to follow and not follow. And sometimes... Well, there were different rules for different industries, right? Based on perception, not and, really based on fact. And that's no exactly what I was going to tell you. Yeah. And based on the industry you're in, you were shoehorned into one category or another. Uh, and that's where the beef is for me. And it still is, as you can tell, gets under my skin when they're saying big box retailers are just fine, but a restaurant isn't. Uh, you know, we have, that's poppycock. I would tell you a more creative term, but I'll keep it clean. Yeah, it's absolutely it, It's poppycock. So, uh, so that's where we were starting to say, well, wait a second. If, if we are doing the proper distancing and we are all together in a booth and I'm sitting in the booth next to yours and my back is to yours, how can I pass COVID to you? And, and that's what we are trying to push and try to explain and educate. And I don't want to, I don't like using the word education because it sounds condescending, but that's what we kept talking about with the governor's office and with others as they were asking our opinion and, and where, where should, we should go. So I will tell you that the partnership was very good with the Ducey administration. Uh, I know that he's taken heat and I get it. I don't think any governor's been perfect. Uh, but in a situation like this, it's about progress, not perfection. And I think mm. in the past quarter, we've made tremendous, tremendous progress. Uh, but as I will tell you, one not a disagreement, but kind of a conundrum was two weeks ago when we were able to lift our capacity to 100%, but still had a six. Right. Foot. Yeah, so maybe a two top now is a four top. But you still can't, you're still limited. Yeah, so it really yeah. didn't do a whole lot. And I think they saw that and, and working with them, uh, saw what was happening in other states. We see vaccination levels rise and, and the like. And that got us to the place where we are today. And if people want to use metrics, you got to be careful of that because not everyone wants to get vaccinated. So you can't say when vaccinations reach X, we can reopen because that just doesn't hold any water. Right. Now, look, I've had death threats for uh, restaurants being open, uh, for restaurants not being closed for both, I mean, on both sides, right, of how irresponsible we are as an industry and we just want money uh, to, we're cowering and we should just not allow any masks to be in. I'm not going to your restaurant if you have mask policies. So I've seen it all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I say we're the hospitality industry and we're here to be hospitable. We don't like to do that in masks. We don't like to be saying no. We want to say yes. Uh, and it's our pleasure to serve you. And uh, that certainly was tested in 2020. Yeah, boy. Well, I, I've got to hand it to restaurants that I've, you know, been to and done took takeout from. I mean, it's been a, the, I, I'm, you know, amazed at how quickly your industry pivoted. Uh, and, and I just can't imagine how difficult that had to be for you know, you and your restaurant owners uh, and the people that work work for the restaurants because it just was just a crazy, crazy time. I've, I've often called uh, COVID itself as the quickening where it has affected different industries and, and people in a way where they had to make adjustments that they were probably going to be pushed to make anyway, but something needed to be a catalyst. And certainly the takeout, with the, the metrics that you talked about, about going from less than 5% or 1% to... 25%. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine that's going to stick. Yeah, it, it's going to it's going to pull back a little bit yeah. because of dining room capacity, but uh changing, but no, it's going to probably be 15 
15 to 18, which is is still uh, wonderful. And you you learn, at least you hope to learn during these types of situations. And let me tell you, the outgrowth of COVID-19 for the restaurant industry means a few things. One, first and foremost, technology, technology, technology. I've said this to the unions time and time again when they want to continue to raise the minimum wage. Uh, Your wage worker, your union employee paying dues will be unemployed. And, and it'll in, be a computer screen in his or her place will be a robotic arm. I can show you a hamburger made by a robot. You'd never know the difference. You look at the kiosks, you know, you go into any quick service restaurant now, and this young teenage girl was showing me how to use the kiosk. And I said, sweetheart, you don't realize, but this is your, this is you, <laughs> this is your job. Uh, so what, what COVID yeah. has done <clears throat> for this industry is sped that up. Yeah. Technology. So now you've got texting platforms that will let you know when your when your seat's ready, right? Instead of congregating in uh, the the waiting area of a of a restaurant, you've got QR codes on the table of restaurants with with the menus. Uh, so it's been a good incubator for us uh, to test some of these markets, to test some of these ideas, uh, and so that that's going to continue. Also, what we can and can't do with employees. You know, a lot of our employees are our family members, and you can't, especially in fine dining, replace hospitality with a robot. It just will never work. Uh, but what it will do is allow you to be better at your craft. Uh, and and that's what, if there were any benefit for our industry, that was the benefit of COVID-19, was to tell us how we could be better to look for and create better packaging so your French fries aren't soggy when they reach you. Right. Some restaurants just want to give you the French fries, right? Uh, and so um, it's all about stability and consistency in the food you receive each and every time you come to the restaurant. So some of those, I think we're as an industry overall, meaning the National Restaurant Association, Arizona Restaurant Association, we're gonna to work together on to see how we can improve and take them to the next level. Awesome. Before we transition, I noticed you're wearing an aura ring. Yeah, I just um, saw yours. You're the first person I've seen that had one other than my doctor who told me to get one. Is that right? Yeah. So I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So by the way. this is a, a, it's basically, so I wear actually two things, a Fitbit and an yeah. aura ring. And it just, okay. I, mine is most useful for me for my sleep. <clears throat> so I, I track, you know, it tracks your heart rate variability, your resting heart rate. Oh, this is one of these Amazon things that they they keep track of everything for you, right? Yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs> Basically, well, I have a Garmin, so I mean, that's, yeah. So it's it. It, it's pretty similar. It just happens to be a ring, and it's very convenient. Um, so I'm, you know, I've obviously do a lot of fitness stuff, and we'll do a podcast about fitness. That'd be great. Um, your doctor recommended it. So. Yeah. So I. Uh, being in this industry, being in a restaurant two times a day, minimal, uh, for me, you can gain weight, surprisingly. Is that right? I, I learned that uh, <laughs> 16 years ago when I first, uh, my first three years in, in this job. So I, uh, having lost a lot of weight early on, said I want to keep that going. So for the past four years, I got into this boxing uh, gym, uh, just one-on-one. Uh, it's, you got a set time. So I've been doing that three days a week. Uh, and... You know, it's interesting. I asked my doctor, what are the top three causes of death? One, heart attack, stroke, right? Two, cancer. Three, COVID-19. COVID-19 slash infectious disease, 
right? So over time, that's going to yep. diminish and just remain infectious disease. So about six years ago, I started seeing a heart doc, not because I've got heart problems, but because I want to keep it that way. So I'm only one of about 10 patients of hers that has zero plaque in my arteries, and I want to keep it that way. So they said sleep is critical to being healthy. Uh, and they, I had a Fitbit, and they track it. So it downloads into their office. So they knew exactly how much she, there's no lying, right? right. <laughs> Not like in my brophy days when I would lie to get out of detention and still got detention. But uh, so they would, they would track it, which is fascinating. Uh, and then I got COVID very badly in December. Uh, and uh, my doctor, she was great and had IVs come into my house. And uh, they noticed that my sleep was interrupted, obviously. I had a fever for 10 days as high as 105. Couldn't shake it. Wow. I uh, almost had to get admitted to the hospital, which none of us wanted to do. And luckily on that 11th day, I was feeling better. So I, as, a, as an outgrowth, not that I'm a long hauler because I, I feel great, but my sleep has been very badly interrupted. Uh, since COVID. And so now they're tracking it. And uh, I think it's stress and a lot of other things. But, yeah. Yeah. But you're right. This is what's great about it is, is it tracks all that. So I love it. I have the app and see how well I did or didn't sleep. And always looking and for that, works. that crown. And in my, uh, yeah, yeah, crown exactly. Readiness haven't, crown. haven't had a sleep crown probably in two months. Unfortunately. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of my, my colleagues at the Arizona Restaurant Association asked my admin, she said, uh, why does Steve have two wedding bands? And she said he really just really loves his wife. Uh, so, so everyone thinks that's a double wedding band, but uh, I like it better than having to wear the Fitbit. I yeah. you've got both, but yeah. I just don't wear a watch. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, see, I could solve that for you both by just applying the Garmin and <laughs> yeah. keeping it on. There you have. There you have it. Keep track of all that stuff. So um, fascinating recap of what you did with the restaurant association with COVID. Let's talk about Maricopa County and the supervisors and what's going on down there. Well, this is my, I've been in two terms. This is the beginning of my third term, which has been very rewarding for me. Um, You're just saying that, right? My, uh, <laughs> both. Yeah. You See, know, now look, we can really have some fun with them. I think the, uh, before it was very sensitive. Now it's, now it's politics. <laughs> now it's yeah. Politics. politics. <laughs> now, yeah. It's a blood sport. You know, I, I ran for public office uh, because I knew you could bring a business mindset to government. And and that's what we did uh, in Maricopa County. You can hire and fire at will now because of it. Uh, we It's about uh, need, not want, when it comes to our capital expenditures and how we budget and do everything. A great story I'll share with you is that our first few months in office, it was Denny Barney and myself, the two newest board members on the on the Board of Supervisors, and we had a meeting with our head of facilities. We had just acquired the old obsolete building of the Arizona Republics in Mesa. Hmm. Arizona Republic didn't use it anymore, uh, and so we bought it for a million dollars. And it made perfect sense on two fronts. One, all of our East Valley employees could be co-located, so we are going to save a lot of money on rent. And two, it was going to bring about that interpersonal uh, workforce where you were all in the same building, so you weren't dislocated and bring about work efficiencies. So our head of uh, facility said it's going to be $3 million to rehabilitate the building in the condition we needed it. And Danny and I looked at each other and said, who spends three times the purchase price? You don't need granite countertops in, in government buildings. And we accepted her resignation two months later. <laughs> uh, her successor came in, total cost $689,000. One wow. employee, one decision, say Maricopa County taxpayers, $2.3, $2.4 million. 
That gentleman just retired, uh, sadly, um, and uh, he's his last day is uh, this Friday. Uh, and we totaled it up. I think he probably saved $100 million in going out and rebidding things. We took a one-time jail, made it into office space for the county attorney. I said to Bill Montgomery at the time, Bill, it's great. Every attorney has its own office. They have their own bathroom and sink. Door opens and closes on its own. Uh, and so we took a building, right, that would have been an eyesore, meaning having to tear it down, the cost of all that. And we converted a jail into office space. That's entrepreneurism as it, at its best. And, and so it was very rewarding. And then you got into the election of last year. And what we saw with our county recorder at the time, Adrian Fontes, uh, was that not Adrian, not even his predecessor, Helen Purcell, we saw that that construct was a construct that was from the 1950s, meaning when Maricopa County was 300 uh, or so thousand people, not the millions of people we are today, almost 5 million people, 4.5 million people. And so what the crux of this whole thing is, as it relates to elections, is the authority given by the Board of Supervisors in the 1950s to the recorder to basically run election day. When prior to that, the recorder was only able to do early elections and registrations, right? So it, it made sense. What didn't make sense is this whole dominion issue and, and everything that, that came from it. And, and so that was tough because for me personally, we went and created an elections office and department that was more reflective, reflective of 2020 than 1955, which there were no lines during a pandemic. Right. Uh, and there were no lines. Everything went well, but because of the outcome, because of questions cast upon uh, the system used to tabulate, none of that was ever looked at. And that's not a casting aspersions on the voting public. As a fiscal Republican, I've always said, I will spend whatever money I need to spend to, to prove and to protect one's right to vote. Uh, and that's what I will continue to do. Um, but it's been, it's been disappointing. You know, the death threats calling it, you know, saying we're, where we should be held for treason. I mean, people have not held back, calling us pedophiles or we're trying to hide something because we're pedophile. I mean, you name it. Uh, people coming to your front door, having to have police protection. Uh, I've always said, look, you know, I, I realize politics is a blood sport. I'm never going to apologize or ask for sympathy because of what comes with it. It is what it is. Uh, but at the same time, don't think that I'm going to suck up or kiss up for your vote. I want to earn your vote, and I'm going to push back. And that's what I've done. I have pushed back on some of my constituents who have who have been out of line, quite frankly. Well, there's been just a level of crazy that is mind-blowing. Um, and you talked about the Dominion thing. I don't know if you saw this. This just Sidney Powell, you know, being sued by Dominion mm -hmm. for $1.6 billion. Along with Fox News. Fox News is now billion. Maybe, maybe Donald Trump's going to get sued as well. In her argument to dismiss the case, she makes the she says that no reasonable person would believe that she was telling the truth. No, I read that the other day. I was kind <laughs> of... So this whole thing is just a big myth, and you're now admitting it's a big myth, and you're getting death threats because of it. I mean, it's just well, well not, not only that, but the the legislature voted to 
to arrest you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <laughs> to, to arrest the county supervisor. Here, when now, we, now, now, I think it was one of those moments where they're all heated up and say, "Let's let's do this." And then when it happens, they're like, "Now what? What are we doing? Now what are we doing? What are we doing?" Because so, we're we're really serious. And and look, look, I I, I don't know how they're going to count those, but the the point I've made to anyone who's asked about the election in Maricopa County, I mean, the, the, how that election played out and the, the votes, because everyone says Arizona's results were all hinged on this problem in Maricopa County. So Adrian Fontes, Democrat, the recorder, loses by, what, 4,400 votes? Joe Biden beats Trump in Maricopa County by, I don't know, 30 or 40,000? Statewide, it was 11,000. Right, but, right. You know. You're telling me that Fontes stole this for Biden and didn't steal it for himself? I mean, come on. Or for the hottest race in in Maricopa County, which was not the presidential race. It was arguably the county attorney's race. Yeah, I mean, didn't... And and, and that swung the other way late, but it did. Yeah. So there's there's another example. I mean, it's just... I mean, he's... The politicians... Maybe exclusion of Steve, I don't know, are self-interested, right? So if Fontes is going to steal this thing for Biden, he's going to steal it for himself as well. So And it didn't happen. So it just I, I, this whole stuff is just, you I know, mean, yes, there's going to be a handful of examples of fraud. It happens every year. But it's not systemic. You know, uh, I'll, I'll quote, and I'm paraphrasing to a degree, uh, President Nixon said, show me a man or a woman that's faced adversity in their life, and I'll show you someone that's done something with their life. We've all faced our own adversity, right? There was, uh, Sean, you were running my first campaign. I was, t- I was running against a 16-year incumbent. It wasn't going to happen. And it did. And we've made a lot of good happen. But as uh, I think it was Prime Minister McMillan of the U.K., was had just lost his election. I don't know if you guys, this is early on. And a reporter back then was trying to be very polite and really was asking the question, why do you think you lost? And he said, sir, why do you think we find ourselves where we are today? So why did you lose, right? But saying it nicely, and the prime minister said, events, my dear boy, events. <laughs> It's the events that lost it for the prime minister. It wasn't anything really the prime minister did. So I somewhat look in amazement to constituents and others when they say to me that we're going to recall you, that you did this wrong, you did that wrong. And I say to them that public office doesn't complete me. I met with Rudy Giuliani because he asked me to. And I said that to him. It doesn't. Why did I call for an audit? I called for an audit because my 82-year-old mother's not a right-wing nut. The contractor building my home isn't a right-wing nut. Do you remember the Firestone tire issue in the late 90s where Firestone said it's a Ford Explorer problem and Ford said, no, it's not. It's a Firestone problem. Guess what? It was a Firestone problem. But by the end of the day, it was so clouded. That's what you have with Dominion. Was Dominion wrong? Was it right? Right? You've got Sidney Powell casting these aspersions and all these other folks. And that's the sadness of it, because now whether Dominion's good or bad or indifferent, right, it's still clouded. And so I said, I don't believe that Donald Trump won Arizona. I voted for him, 
but I don't believe he won. Do I think dead people voted? Yes, and we got to figure that out. Do I think some fraud may have happened? Yes, because it always manages to. But do I think that votes were actually siphoned out for one candidate over the other because of Hugo Chavez and all these other things? No, I don't. I don't. And do I think our equipment was solid? Yes. But now it doesn't matter because perception in politics is reality. And I think we have to look at new tabulation equipment because my concern is about future elections. And that was the whole reason right. why I wanted the audit. And to your point about the legislature, when we first got the subpoenas and everyone wanted to fight, I said to my colleagues, we find ourselves in one fine mess. And tell me a situation in either one of your lives where fighting made it better, where lawyers standing their ground and leading with their chin made it better. It doesn't. I didn't want to fight it. That's why I voted against the subpoenas, against fighting them and for an audit. Because let's get to the finish line of this and let's do yep. it for the right reasons of the people. Yep. Now, what some of these state senators said about me and my colleagues, I certainly don't agree with. But to take it personally and to try to get your your heels dug in and your jaw tightened isn't why I ran for office and isn't why you're elected. You're elected to be a statesman. You're elected to lead for the future of Arizona. And that's what we're doing. And I, I even spoke to Senator Fan last week saying, we stand ready to help you. This judge ruled. And that was a question of my attorneys, our attorneys. They say they're right that we can hand these ballots over. We say we we're right, but we can't. What is it? And a judge ruled, you know? And, and so we need to move beyond this because quite frankly, when I just shared with you about to become the third largest county in America, we do a lot more than just elections, Yeah, right? Yeah. We just lost a 38-year-old young man this morning in Glendale who's a part of our MCDOT team who was picking up pylons and got hit by a hit-and-run driver. Mm. Four kids and a baby on the way. Those are the real issues, right? The real issues of our inmates who lie to us and say they took their diabetic medication and then have a seizure, right? And then sue us. Building a new jail out on the west side that actually has courtrooms inside it so we don't have the transportation cost or the flight. Right. We do that now through, through technologies just like we're using today, and we're saving 3 to $4 million just not having to transport inmates by making it smart, by putting a padded wall up. Because when you get to intake, you figure out you're going to jail and you freak out. And when we throw you against the padded wall, you don't get stitches in your forehead like you would a block wall, right? That's what we should be talking about. Not Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. <laughs> so, so that's where I want to shift back. We'll figure out the elections of tomorrow for Arizona, Maricopa County in particular. But we've got a lot of work to do to continue to make us as nimble and agile as the, the soon-to-be third-largest county in America. That's a great way to I end said, it, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a great yeah. segue. But, hey, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much thank for being here. And congratulations thanks, thanks for your time. I think it's great. I hope I get an invitation back. You will. Well, you will. well yeah. once we'll you see. announce your candidacy for the next office, then perhaps we can have right. you back. You know, that's yeah. coming up here. Dog catcher sounds really Dog. appealing about right now. <laughs> You know, or uh, lifeguard I mean, in, in, in L.A. County. There you go. Oh, yeah. Top paid lifeguard in L.A. County, $392,000 last I year. I missed my calling when I was wow. graduating from USC. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know what? I, I just want to say, for the record, you're a great friend. You're, you. you're, you're a great leader within your industry. You always have been. And, and, and you're a, an incredible leader here in Maricopa County. You know, and, and uh, 
you, you just need to be congratulated for, oh, for having you. keeping an even keel throughout this entire thing. Because uh, I know it's been frustrating yeah. well, all the way around. No, and I appreciate it. And look, I, I look at, you know, they talked about the council culture, and that could be probably a whole other podcast. And someone asked me what, oh, we're getting what, there. I, what I thought about it. And I said, you know what? History, if you don't understand where your history comes from, you can't ever understand where you're going. And my paternal grandfather was murdered because he was a Catholic in Lebanon, in the streets of Lebanon in front of my father. My maternal grandfather immigrated here uh, and and was actually turned away. His grand, his father was turned away at the border. Uh, and he was started his career here for, with $5 in his pocket. So you've got to appreciate history. And I think what we saw in 2020 was history in the making, of course. But you gotta you got to embrace it and understand it, not try to fight it or defend it. And I think that's where we are as, you know, that's where I am in my elected capacity is let's learn from it and move forward because to dwell on it, it's only going to bring about more problems. And we've seen that. Yeah. So, but thank you for the kind words. I mean, it's a yeah. lot, Chris. Well, it's just been awesome. I've, since we've known each other, since we were both just kids, kids, it's been great to watch your career. It makes me feel well, same here. Well, I feel a little bit undeveloped in the sense of how, how far Steve has gone. In this, so in here's this a great story. Sean and I are in DC at the same time, exact same time back in 1994. Uh, and we we got to know each other well. Our officers were right across from each other. You were upstairs. We were one floor below you. And so met my wife back there. It was it was a great, um, great situation. And Paul Ryan was one of our colleagues back then. He was a staffer. staffer yeah. So when you say that, I said to my wife when Paul Ryan was the vice presidential candidate, uh, honey, you've got to be very proud that you're married to a county supervisor <laughs> where Paul Ryan held the same job I did and now is a vice presidential candidate. So, But you're um, forgetting Paul Ryan's real claim to fame while we were all rumorating around in D.C. He was your bartender at Tortilla Coast. Oh, <laughs> that's the right. place that's impressive. I love Tortilla Coast, by the way. Closed. It's, and it's, yeah. It yeah. did? It's gone. Is it gone? Because of COVID? Mm. Oh. Isn't that terrible? So. Whenever, I, whenever I've seen Paul, I just remind him of that. Remember, you were a bartender. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> You're that's not great. that cool. See, the restaurant industry me launches life. you. There you that's go. That's where it goes. There you go. Yeah. Thank you both. <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for being with us. Great to have you.